So, as the offering is being received, I would encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to uh, finish up this section in Philippians by looking at verses 17 through uh, 21 this morning. As we do, uh, we're kind of walking through developing the spiritual mind in chapter 3. The spiritual mind tells us that the secret of having joy in spite of things is, is in having a spiritual mind. A spiritual mind is the mind that focuses of the things of heaven, not the things of this world. When you have a spiritual mind, you realize that your home is in heaven, not this place, so that you won't be distracted or discouraged by the things that occur in, in a fallen world. Now, in order for us to, to fully implement that spiritual mind, one of the great things for us to be able to do, and the challenge for us, is that we really need to find and follow other people who, are, who have developed that spiritual mind. We need to find and follow the right role models in life. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when you get to verse number 33 of chapter 15, Paul says these words. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so, again, throughout Scripture, you'll find place after place where it tells us to place a high priority and give extreme caution of the people or the teaching that you follow. And so, in our text this morning, Paul's going to identify a godly example, and he's going to give us an ungodly example. And the challenge for us is for us to know who we are. And so we begin with verse number 17. Check it out. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according uh, to the example that you have in us. So the godly example that Paul starts off with is the example of himself. He says, you want the godly example to find and to follow in life? Then follow me. Now, now some people might have a problem with this. Some people might struggle and think, well, man, isn't that a bit arrogant for Paul to say, hey, follow my godly example? I don't think it's arrogant of him at all. Especially when you go back and you see in chapter 2, verse number 5, he already told us the perfect example for all of us to follow follow is Christ himself. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the supreme example. And then earlier in chapter 3, in verse number 12, Paul even confesses, and he says, Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, follow him, after already confessing that Jesus is the chief example, and he himself still struggles in, in his own pursuit of developing Christ-like maturity. Ultimately, Paul is saying, hey, everything that you see that's good in me, follow that. And the things that you don't see that aren't Christ-like, then don't follow that. He's not uh, calling them to blindly follow him no matter what. He's saying, be cautious, be careful. But insofar as much as I look like Jesus, then then follow that and, and practice that. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
verse number one. It's simply repeating the same thing. He says, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. So he's saying, follow him. As, as much as you see Jesus in him, follow that. When you don't see Jesus displayed in him, don't follow that example. Paul gives himself as a godly example. Then he lays out the ungodly example and the warning that comes with it. Let's keep reading. Look at verse number 18. Verse 18 says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul warns the the Philippians uh, about a certain group of people. And that certain group of people, he, he says, man, be, be very careful. They're enemies of the cross. So what do we know about this certain group of people? Well, apparently, Paul has already talked about this group of people in the past because he says, as I have warned you before, apparently this group of people were many in number. So he says, many. So there's a large group of people to whom Paul has referred to in the past, and he's saying, be careful, because this group of people, they're enemies of the cross. And it says that they walk, and notice that the text says um, that they walk as enemies of the cross. That walk indicates a perpetual lifestyle. He's not talking about a group of people that have slipped into error. No, he's talking about people who have embraced error, that are, that are promoting uh, the wrong thing, that are embracing it in their lives. And he's saying, watch out for them. Well, let's be honest. I don't think Paul would, would take too kindly for the softness that's on display within many churches today. Fortunately, far too many Places and people and churches have this live and let live mentality. Where doctrine and moral purity, well, they were a serious matter to Paul. So much so, did you catch it when I read it? He says, now I tell you even with tears. It breaks them down. In sorrow and sadness, he's trying to give them a warning about making sure they don't follow the wrong people. Paul saw the doctrinal heretics. He he saw the people who were holding to moral error for exactly who they were. And that's the enemies of the cross of Christ. He saw them as enemies. Let me ask you something. How precious is the cross of Jesus to you? you? Are you jealous over it to the point that you will not tolerate any behavior or any belief that tends to belittle the cross of Christ? Do you care how other people approach it? Uh, How other people practice life? Does it matter to you at all? Say this, that those that do not take the cross of Christ very seriously would do well to pay very close attention to what Paul says in verse number 19. Check it out. Verse number 19 says that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Paul starts by saying that their end is destruction. What does that mean? It means that their end is eternal. Their end is an irreversible 
separation from God and all that is holy and all that is good. It is eternal and it is an irreversible separation. He says, their end is destruction. And after he goes with the general warning about their end being eternal and irreversible, then he goes on to give us some characteristics by which we can identify those that are setting the ungodly examples so that we won't be caught up and so that we won't follow or or, or pursue after them. Notice how he describes them. He starts off with their God. He says that their God is their belly, which means that they worship their appetite. They worship their own personal desires. Their sole purpose and pursuit in life is to pursue whatever gratifies their flesh. Whatever makes them happy. If it feels good, then do it and pursue it. That's what he says is their God. But not only does he say that they're God, uh, he also talks about their glory. He says their God is their belly and then they glory in their shame which means their morals and their values are, are so distorted, they're so confused, they're so messed up, that they actually go around boasting about the very things that they ought to be ashamed of. One of the sure signs that an individual or a society has become utterly depraved is that they lack the ability to feel shame. And then they begin to promote and boast about sin when that sin ought to bring about confession and repentance. And when an individual or society embraces that sin, promotes that sin, highlights that sin, is proud of that sin, that's, that's, that's a bad sign. And we're living in the midst of it today. I already heard from the first service and... I understand that what I'm about to say, for some of you, you're not going to enjoy, you're not going to approve, you're not going to like, and check it out. I'm good with that. I'm all right with it. Because I think it's rooted in the Word of God. And I'm also humble enough to know that if it's not, then I'll trust that you'll come to me, you'll sit down with me, and you'll show me where it isn't. But when I see the Scriptures, I see certain things for what they are. And when we have a society that boasts in uh, immorality, sexual perversion, that, that promotes it and celebrates it, that ought to concern us. And we ought to see it for what it is, enemies of the cross. I'll give you one example, and I'll show you in Scripture. What we've done with the covenant reminder of God that he would never bring about complete destruction by the flood with the rainbow is appalling. We've now converted that symbol and put it on a flag and we wave it as a banner to take pride in. We shouldn't at all. Let me share what the scripture says. Turn with me uh, to the book of Genesis. Some of you didn't open your Bibles to Philippians, probably because you're afraid you weren't going to be able to find it. I get it. But this is the first book. You can find it. The first book in the Bible is Genesis. Let me show you in scripture. Turn in Genesis, and when you get there, go to chapter 6. Genesis 
Genesis chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse number 5. There it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. There's his sorrow. There's his anguish. There's the turmoil. There's the, there's the, 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 the deep hatred towards sin. He's like, I'm sorry, it grieves me. But then thankfully, verse number 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so then, through the rest of chapter 6, we, we begin to read about Noah and the flood. And then the flood subsides in chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8 is God's covenant with Noah. But check out chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. In verse number 8, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you, which means it includes us. And he goes on to say, um, verse 10, And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. This is an all-encompassing covenant with God. And then he goes, verse 11, I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. You checking it out? Like God gave us that promise, that covenant. The covenant is the rainbow. And God says, when I see that rainbow, I will be reminded of the covenant that I've entered with you, that I will no longer destroy all of the earth by the flood. Not that I'm not angry with sin. Not that I'm not righteously indignant with this sin, but I have put a self-imposed limitation and restriction that I will not pour out my wrath again like I did here. That's what he's saying. Like, keep reading, and then it says, uh, go back to 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again that become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So as long as the rainbow hangs in the sky, God is mercifully and graciously restraining his anger towards humanity. You know that? 
But check it out. If God put a rainbow in the sky to symbolize the constraint of his anger, make no mistake, he is still angry towards sin and all unrighteousness. His anger is just. His anger is righteous. Because mankind is still wicked, still prone to pursue after evil continually. One day, his anger will no longer be limited. One day, he'll roll up the sky, rip open the heavens, send down his son, and Jesus will come to establish and to claim what is rightfully his. We took a sign of the covenant and now we wave it as a banner to promote sexual deviation. It's the equivalent of waving the middle finger up to God. Shame on us. Does it not bother? Does it grieve us when it sees it happening? It ought to. What does this tell us about our society? Proclaiming sexual perversion as a normal or even a desirable way of living. Slaughtering the unborn in the name of freedom, choice, convenience. All of these are shameful beyond description. But our society feels no shame. Instead, it tries to shame those that speak out against such actions and activities. Just mention God's judgment. And you will be identified as being cruel and sensitive or some type of religious fanatic. That's our country. We shame those who talk about God's judgment. And then we live and pursue the very sin that brings about the judgment of God. And we do so without any shame at all. Paul says, choose wisely who you're going to follow. If you want the right example, follow me. In so much as you see Christ in my life, follow after that. You want a wrong example, don't, don't follow the ungodly. How do you recognize them? How do you know them? You know them by their God. Their God is their belly. You know them by their glory. They glory in their shame. And then he says, you know them by their mindset. It says their minds are set on earthly things. Which means ultimately they live as though God is non-existent. That heaven and hell, they they aren't real. That doesn't matter. They, They live as though this life is all that there is that matters. Let me be careful here. And let me just say too, sometimes a word of caution, as believers, we have a tendency to put too much focus on this world without realizing where our true citizenship belongs. If you're a child of the king, then you belong in heaven. That's home, not this. So when believers say things like, I'm not ready to go yet because I have so much more I want to do here, you have no understanding about what's to come. Why would we want this when we can get that? As for me, um, I'm ready. Like, I'm, like, I'll go today. I'll be good. I, I don't want to cling on to this world with everything and be sad about the thought of death. There ought to be no sadness with the thought of death. 
God is sovereign over all of it. When it's my time to go, my wife's going to be taken care of. My kids are going to be fine because God is sovereign over it all. Don't get so hung up on this world. This isn't home. In fact, let's keep reading. Look at verse number 20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I would put a parenthesis around verses 20 and 21 and say, man, this is where we're told, like, we need to know who we are. Know who you are. If you're a child of the king, then know where you belong. You belong in heaven. This is temporary. This world is passing. This, this world won't last. But the eternal heaven, that's what awaits. We need to be living our lives with the mindset that we belong there, not too comfortable here. Now, like for me, I'm ready. I'll, I'll, I'll go to heaven. I know I'm confident with my relationship with Christ. I believe in what he's done for me. So my confidence salvation has nothing to do with me. has all to do with Jesus and God's promise. But, but, but this ain't home. Now, we live in Texas, so it's pretty close to what heaven's going to be like. But it's not there. It's not perfect. It's still, it's still short in, in, in many, many ways. So we've got to know who we belong to, so that we can know what's truly our home. And so godly believers who have the spiritual mind live their lives with the anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Live their lives with the awareness on this ain't it. There's something greater that's still to come. And are you living life with the anticipation that Jesus is coming back? I mean, I think we universally we believe, yeah, one day he's going to come back. Could be today. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you living every day to its fullest in anticipation that, man, what if today's the day? I think if we lived our lives that way, it would keep us from doing a lot of stupid stuff. And we wouldn't do that stupid sin if we were fully living our lives in anticipation that, oh, maybe Jesus is coming back now. Well, you don't want Jesus to come back and find you doing that when, when he comes back. So maybe it would do better for us to, 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 to fully anticipate and, and, and look towards his second coming. And so we got to know who we are. we got to find and follow the right people to set the right examples for us. And so Paul says in developing that spiritual mind, yes, it's important, find, follow, the right examples. But it's more than just the message of finding and following people. It's also the realization that when people look at you, what example are you setting? Are you setting a godly example? Or are you setting an ungodly example? If people are, are, are turning and they're, they're looking, they're searching, they're, they're wanting to find and follow a godly leader, are they going to follow you? If not, why? 
What keeps them from being able to, to find and follow you as the godly example? Whatever the answer to that is, whatever is keeping them from being able to do that, and most likely that's going to be sin that's manifesting in our lives, something that we need to identify, something that we need to confess, and something we need to repent from. So yeah, we've got to find and follow them, but we too have to set the right examples so that other people can follow us. We should be able to turn to someone who is struggling in their development of their faith, someone who is new as a believer, even a lost person, say, you want to know an example of what a Christian looks like? Follow me. Watch me. I'll show you. Like I want to, don't raise your hands, but how many of you would be like, yeah, that's me today? I'd say that. You want an example of Christ-like maturity? You want an example of what it means to truly love God and love others? Watch me. Watch me and how I live. I'm afraid that the church is filled with too many people who would say, "Mm, no, no, don't follow me. That's not a good thing. I can remember a time in in our lives and one of the churches that that we were serving at was a, a very unhealthy and dysfunctional church. It was bad. It was oh so bad. Lucky me, it was my first experience of being a pastor. And that was, it was a, it it was a painful experience. Went from being a student minister, and I thought that was the greatest job in ministry that anybody could ever have. You could have in-depth conversation with students. You can have fun and do all kinds of events, and you can let the pastor deal with all the big problems of the church. I mean, I think that's the best gig that someone can have. The guy called me from, from student ministry to pastoral ministry. And it was in the same town that we were living in, so we didn't need to move. So we, we get to this church, and I didn't know any better. I didn't know the right questions to ask or, or the right things to look for. I was just excited about the opportunity to be a pastor. And then get there and begin to really look at the history of the church and to realize that I was either the seventh or eighth pastor of the church. The church was only 12 years old. Yeah, yeah, that should, that, that should be a, a warning flag to, to most people. But not me. I was like, huh, God's going to call me to it. This is going to be awesome. We're going to blow this place up. It's going to be good. About a year into that journey is one of the most defining moments of, of my ministry experience that I heard God not audibly, not, not physically like a voice, but that's it, so clear to me. It's like, David, like you're trying to build this thing, build this thing, build this thing. Do you not realize that's not why I called you here? I didn't call you to the church to build it. I brought you to the church to close it down because this church does not honor me in any way. So my first pastoral experience was in leading a church to close its doors. Um, The majority of the people understood it and embraced it. There were a handful of people who had an unhealthy, oh, I don't know how to describe it. i got to be careful. People are watching this, I'm sure. I don't really care. Uh, but they had an unhealthy attachment and possession of the church. It was their church. They, it's going to be done their way. Uh, or, you know, and it was just, it was brutal. It was a season that was, that was really hard. And going into unpacking the strategy of closing the church was, Fully confident this is what God wanted us to do. I can remember pulling my kids aside 
especially my boys. And I said, listen, we're going to this church meeting, and I'm sure it's not going to be pleasant, which is a shame in and of itself. But there were some real hostile feelings. And uh, I, I tried to tell my boys, I said, listen, don't get caught up with it. Don't focus on it. Here's the deal. Watch your daddy. Watch me. I'm going to show you how the, the right way to, to do this. I'll show you the right way to, to live through this. Don't get focused on the distraction. Keep your eyes on your dad. And so that's what we did. And so we led that church. We took it a little over a year to get to the process of closing the doors. We closed the doors the first Sunday in January of 2011. Is that right? 2011? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and so first Sunday in January of 2011, I put my resume out the very next day because I was all in until God closed that door. He closed that door. I sent my resume out on a Monday. And I thought, all right, God, honor this. Let's go. What's going to happen next? Man, silence. I went through the biggest season of uh, silence that I've ever experienced in my life. Sent a resume out to more than 300 different churches all around the globe. We're like, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. Man, I'm yours. I'm all in. Just open that opportunity. And it took a year and a half before God presented us with that opportunity. In that season of life, I had to overcome a lot of fears of my own self, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of, why would anybody even want to talk to me? Who wants a pastor that's closing churches? We want a pastor that builds a church. And I, kept, I thought for, for a good while, I thought I was just ruined in ministry, that I had no, no other plan to do. When I pursued other things, I realized that I didn't enjoy anything other than the church. I love the church. I love serving the church. I love leading the church. And I would say, like I said to my boys, like, I'm not perfect. Far from it. I'm, I'm a work in progress, but I love Jesus, and, and I'm fully committed uh, to reaching this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so much as you see Christ in me, follow me. And when you don't, you better be the first person to pull me aside and say, Pastor, I'm struggling here. I'm seeing something that I don't think is very Christ-like, and so I need, I need some help. I need some understanding. I'll take that accountability. Because I'll give that accountability as well. And so, the message for us is to really to set the right example for other people. To follow the right example of other people. And then let me, real quickly, let me give you two things. And then I'm going to be done. I want to close with just two quick observations about mistakes that people often make when it comes to God. First and foremost, uh, I think people often make the mistake that that they, they think that they have all the time in the world to make a decision. I'll just put off until tomorrow, or I'll wait until later. And, and, and that, my friends, that's just not so. Man, the right time to make a decision for Jesus, whether it's salvation, whether it's in service, ministry, whether it's confession and repentance, the right now is the right time is right now. This is the time. And the other mistake that people often make in, in respect to God is they tend to think that they can get to heaven by believing in God and simply doing good and being good, being a good moral person. Let me tell you, goodness ain't going to cut it. You want to know why heaven isn't filled with good people? It's because being good isn't a prerequisite to getting into heaven. 
perfection is. Look around. None of us are perfect. None. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, how God, when we put our faith in Jesus, then God imputes the righteousness of Christ. That's credits to our account. He takes our sin and he says, I'm going to credit your account with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And we get the good end of the exchange. Jesus, what does he get? Well, he gets our sin credited to his account. So there's that beautiful exchange where he takes our sin, credits it to the account of Jesus. He takes the Lord's perfect righteousness and credits it to our account. So that heaven has nothing to do with being good. Heaven has everything to do with being perfect. And the only way that we can be perfect is in and through Jesus Christ. That is it. And so in a moment, we're going to sing. We sing as our closing time together. A time of invitation, if you will. I'll be down here at the front to pray with you, to talk with you, to encourage you in any way. But before I pray us out, and before we sing, let me talk to you real quick about what's here on the table. Because this is part of the invitation today. Four weeks from today, we are going to be experiencing what I've called as the awakening. The awakening happens October 21st through October 24th. We have a special guest that's coming here. His name is Ken Freeman. Ken Freeman is from San Antonio, Texas. This dude will bring it. He's been at every church I've ever served at, and without fail, he knows how to bring the Word of God. He is gifted in evangelism, so this week will be an emphasis on evangelism. Someone asked me, well, are you talking about a revival? My answer is, I don't know. I hope it is. You do realize that a revival isn't something that happens outside of church. Revival happens inside the church. So if we're willing to confess our sins, to repent, to pursue and run after God with everything, that, we can have a revival right now, starting right here. So, so, yeah, this is going to happen October 21st through the 24th. We have these cards that are available for you. Take a stack of them. Uh, share them, pass them out, saturate this area with invitations, inviting people to come. There's a special schedule for those days. It's all on the card. You just got to read. It's that simple. The second thing that we have down here is a little white piece of paper. That white piece of paper is a prayer challenge. I'm inviting you to join with me in prayer and preparation for the Great Awakening. So it begins today. And so this week, the theme for this week is to prepare personally. We have a scripture text to be reading through the week. That's going to be Ephesians chapter 2. We have daily prayer points to be praying through. And on the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a list of three things to be praying for the whole time. So my challenge to you, my invitation to you, is to come make a commitment to pray with us for the awakening, grab some cards, and start inviting people to be your guests for this. The only other request that I would have is if you have any influence in any of our junior high or high schools in this area, Ken does an amazing school assembly. He'll either do it with one massive audience. We were in Gregory, Portland, and I actually sat with him as he did 10 classes in a row. 
uh, just on their bell schedule. They brought two classes into one room. He did ten presentations, one after another, after another, after another. It is a challenge to the students to make the right choice. Every choice you make affects your friends, your family, your future. And there's one other area that it affects. Come tonight, and I'll tell you about that, basically how he says it. And that other area is faith. And so uh, he has an awesome website. It's called choices101.com. If you have any influence over any of our principals, administrators, anything like that, if you can get them to check out choices101.com, and if we can get Ken to get into the schools during the time that he is here, it's of no cost to them. It's free for them, and he'll speak as often as he can while he's here. So, my friends, that's the challenge before us. Find and follow the right people. Set the right examples so that other people can follow you. And then let's be in prayerful consideration for the awakening. Let's pray. Father, that's a lot. God, I pray that in this moment, your spirit would convict us of what it is that we need conviction from. Some of us need to stop dating this church and just join the church and go all in. Some of us have been running from our ministry of service for others and to others, and we need to just stop coming up with the excuses and say, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm ready to serve. There are some of your children today, Father, who have yet to be baptized. The first act of obedience, and they haven't followed through with that. God, I know that there's sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. God, may we not worry about what's happening around us, but in this moment, may we just be focused on what's happening within. God, be pleased by what you see in us. Be glorified in our response to your word today. It's in Christ's name I pray.